Thank you, David. Please turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Continuing our series through book of Acts, we're now going to start reading at verse 19 of Acts 11. I'm going to read Acts 11, 19 to verse 30, and then I'm going to jump over to chapter 13 to read the first three verses. So we're have two parts of the reading. Uh, if you're going to use the chair, uh, there's a Bible in front of you in the chair. It's on page 978. Acts 11. Let's hear God's word as I read. Starting at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a large and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians. At Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. And if you turn with me to chapter 13, I'm going to actually read the last verse of chapter 12. And after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark, and reading from chapter 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. This is God's word. 
Let me pray. Father, we pray that the meditation of our heart on your word, you would bless it and open our eyes to see glorious saints. Use the, my words today to bring glory to you in Christ's name. Amen. If I was to ask you, who are the founders of Facebook or Apple computers or Microsoft? You would know. I mean, those are famous companies. Or if you're in the Christian world, and I said, hey, do you know who started Ligonier Ministries or the Gospel Coalition or Desiring God? You'd probably know, too, because you've been influenced by books and videos, conferences. But if I said, who started, who was the founder of the church in Antioch? You wouldn't know because we don't know. It's interesting. Verse 20 doesn't mention their names. Unnamed, anonymous missionaries from Cyprus and Cyrene began proclaiming the gospel in Antioch. And the first believers gathered, spoke to Greeks, and a church was planted. Stephen Neal notes in his classic History of Christian Missions that he said this, Nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries. Luke does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of these pioneers who laid the foundation. Few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by the apostles. Now, if any person wanted to take credit for a church, man, Antioch would be a great story to tell. <clears throat> it would look great on your resume. Uh, this first Gentile church. And historically, Antioch became the new sending base for the whole Roman world empire. Luke doesn't give us their names because it's not important to know who the founding pastors were for Antioch. The church is not a human institution. It's not an event for a celebrity pastor. The church is God's plan, his mission strategy to reach the nations. And actually, the founding of the church is ultimately highlighted in verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them. Human hands were definitely involved, but the divine initiative from God is the reason for the vast number of conversions in, in the gathering of them. He brought this church into existence through the proclamation of Christ is Lord. And thankfully, God doesn't need famous people to make this happen. God uses ordinary, anonymous people, prayerfully speaking the gospel to others to come under the lordship of Christ. This is the work of the Spirit. The church in Antioch is the beginning of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Remember how we keep rooting things in Acts 1.8? The structure we see in Acts, where it says, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses, he mentions in Jerusalem. We see that in Acts 2 through 6, where you see many, an explosive growth of the disciples in Jerusalem in that part of the story. And then, then he also says, you also be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria. But well, we saw that in, from Acts 7 through chapter, we're going to see even next week in chapter 12. But our passage today is the seed of the fulfillment when it says, and to the ends of the earth. This will be the church that sends out to the rest of the ministry 
And Paul will, and others will come back to this church in Antioch. So here we are, recording. The recorded force is the start of a new sending base for the Roman Empire for the ends of the earth. So one of the things we can learn from Acts about the church is that in every generation, the church is called to bring good news of the kingdom to the world. God is the missionary. We are his witnesses. A church is to be a visible picture of God's grace and goodness. And as we would purpose, as God would purpose through the book of Acts, it's meant to shape and reform and continually renew us through his word. What is God's heart for the nations? Uh, not unlike today, uh, in the book of Acts, they were kind of pre-Christian, you know, society coming into Antioch. We're now a post-Christian society looking back, and we can learn a lot from the early church of how to do ministry. Glean insight from this church. If God's same purpose is to see our church well-established and reaching beyond the fringe, what can we learn from this church? So I've outlined this morning's message around five characteristics of a missional church. Five characteristics of a missional church. First one, a missional church, this is verses 19 to 21 of chapter 11. So first, a missional church involves the bold and expansive witness of all believers. The bold and expansive witness of all believers. Stephen, who was martyred, had no idea that his persecution and death would launch God's missionary movement out of Jerusalem. So that's what it says in verse 19. It ties it back to Acts chapter 8. Now, those who have been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, which was an island, and Antioch, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Um, like Jesus' suffering was no accident. So this persecution was no accident of history, but God's plan to spread the gospel. Now, at a human level, when you look at verse 19, you kind of can understand what was happening here. When it says, they went out speaking the word to no one except Jews. Remember the storyline we've been learning of the context of Jew and Gentile culture. They, they were going to speak. They're going to evangelize. That's great they're evangelizing. We're not saying don't evangelize Jews. <clears throat> but they were comfortable with that. That was the group they were familiar with. And that's the only people they were talking to. Um, but God had much more in mind, as we see conclude from the story of, of the curtain with Peter being revealed three times and then Peter going to the house of Cornelius. And in Acts 11, verse 18, some people really believe this verse. Okay, we're going to find this out. But here's what verse 11, 18. So then, this is the promise, the word, God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. And some believed it. There's a contrast. In verse 20 begins with the word, but, but some of them came to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks also. Now, you got to remember, up to this point, we've, not, we've only seen isolated stories to Gentiles, like the Ethiopian eunuch or the Roman soldier and his family. This is the first time on such a large scale we're seeing 
numbers of Gentiles, Greeks, believe and follow Christ. And these pioneer missionaries didn't think that evangelism was only to like-minded people. They wanted to cross cultures and cross into other religions and other beliefs. They had a good news for everyone. <clears throat> they were gripped with this reality that people of every culture, every race, every nationality are all dead in sin under the power of Satan, gripped in facing the judgment of God, and they had good news for them. They had good news for them. That's, that's what was grounding and guiding these different missionaries of, of verse 20. And it's interesting in verse 22, another insight, they actually knew how to talk to them. It says in there, they preached good news about the Lord Jesus. You see, in Jerusalem, they might have preached the good news about Jesus is the Messiah, but now that's not going to work out here in Antioch. They're out here preaching Jesus is Lord, the universal Lord, the only God. Of, and this was courageous. In New Testament times, Rome's Caesar claimed worship as Lord. There could be only one Lord, and that's what they were preaching, the true king, the one Lord. They had a bold witness to Greeks of the lordship of Christ. They didn't, they didn't think of the lordship of Jesus that as, a, as a tribal deity. He's not just a local God that we worship. They were gripped with Jesus is the Lord of all. He's the Lord of the whole earth. Every nation, every people group, they were, they were gripped by this. And they, and they weren't thrown off by the, the Greeks. They also spoke to them. So, you know, they could have been in their clan and just made fun of the Greeks. <laughs> oh, those people. Oh, my gosh. Can you believe them? What are they like? Why do they believe that? No, they were drawn actually to them, not away from them. Uh, Paul Miller, who wrote the foreword to his dad's biography, Jack Miller, kind of a well-known pastor, unsung pioneer, really, behind the gospel movement in the early 90s. But his son, Paul, said this about his dad. My dad didn't just critique hippies. He loved them, partially because of the influence of what he had seen at Labrie in Switzerland with Francis Schaeffer. He opened up his heart and our home to numerous burned out hippies and broken people in the early 70s. He said, in fact, my future wife, Jill, was one of them. <laughs> so Paul Miller ended up marrying one of the people that came to his home. It kind of ironic. This is the only time Jack Miller um, witness to someone who married one of his kids. Uh, his daughter, Barbara, married a gang member who was converted through Jack Miller's ministry because he was reaching out out of compassion to gangs. And it just, you never know what's going to happen when you start witnessing. Uh, uh, so, but with the courage and boldness, this is what it is. A missional church boldly and intentionally encounters unbelievers. A missional church boldly and intentionally encounters unbelievers. Its goal is not separation, but redemption without compromised values. So this is our first point. A missional church involves the bold and expansive witness of all believers. A second point from verses 22 to 26. Second, a missional church grows through encouragement and theological depth. A missional church grows through encouragement 
in theological depths. depth. News about this explosive growth reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas all the way up, up to Antioch. And in Acts 8, when the, the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. But this time, they made the choice to send Barnabas. We were introduced to Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. His name is Joseph. He was a Levite from Cyprus, which is an island not too far from Antioch. So that might be why they had sent him. Um, he was nicknamed Barnabas. It actually means son of encouragement. So, you know, if encouragement was a person and had a son, it'd be this guy, Barnabas, spitting image of his dad, chip off the old block. You know, it'd be like, Mr. Encouragement, you know, this is, this is Barnabas. We're going to send him up there. Um, and think about it. The church in Antioch didn't need the apostles to come up to take over leadership of the church. They needed Barnabas to come and fan them in the flame. It's incredible. This guy, he shows up. Imagine a visiting pastor who comes. And he, he's seeing our worship and, and our time together. And he gets here. And he's just glad. He is he. Even though we're not a perfect church, he is just overjoyed. That's what Barnabas was. He got there. He was glad. He saw the evidence of the grace of God. It says he saw it. It was visible to him. What was visible to him? Well, probably their changed character. Probably all these uh, nations worshiping Christ together as a people. He's like, man, nowhere on earth does this happen, but the gospel only can do this. This is the grace of God, and I see it. And he, that's what he, that's what he witnessed to them. And it's a reminder, the church is a visible manifestation of God's grace. The church is. It's, it's visible, or should be, right? Tim Chester wrote, Jesus came to create a people who would model what it means to live under the lordship of Christ, under his rule. It would be a glorious outpost of the kingdom of God, an embassy of heaven on earth. And when Barnabas witnesses new outpost of God's kingdom, it says he encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. That's how he encouraged them. This was his encouragement. Uh, his encouragement to them was at a heart level, cling to Jesus. Don't lose your relationship with Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Jesus, who loved you and gave his life for you, go to him. Open your heart to him. Run after him. That's how he encouraged him. He's fanning in the flame their hearts toward Christ, toward their relationship with the Lord. Verse 24 described Barnabas as a good man, full of the spirit and of faith. And the spirit enabled Barnabas to see the grace of God in others. You know, it didn't create competition for him. He didn't feel jealous about this, his growth. He was gladdened for their growth. He was happy for what God was doing with them in their life. <clears throat> and he knew it was all because of Jesus. And encouragement, encouragement is a vital um, means to a healthy missional church because look at the result. Look, look, at, look what happens at the end of verse 24, the second half of the verse. It says this. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. That's the power of encouragement. Guess what? Barnabas wasn't even doing the evangelism. 
He was just fanning them in the flame, and their cups were overflowing to their friends, their neighbors, their loved ones. They were doing the evangelism, and the Lord was adding to their number. There's a vital part of encouragement that plays in our own lives. A.W. Tozer said, what's closest to your heart is what you talk about. And if Jesus is close to your heart, you'll talk about him. We know salvation is all of God, but he uses means like encouragement in our evangelism. At this point, Barnabas could have really built himself quite a ministry. I mean, this is like, this is working. This is, this is great. This is a tremendous growth. But being a humble man, full of the Spirit, he knew the explosion of this church was beyond him, <laughs> beyond his skills, beyond his abilities, beyond his gift set. He was humble about that. And he said, hey, but I know someone who can do this. And he left Antioch to travel to find Saul, who he knew was a good teacher. So he, Barnabas, found a ministry team to help with this church. And it just shows how important it is. He wasn't worried about his job. He wasn't worried about his influence. He wasn't, these saints were not consuming him. He was mostly concerned for the kingdom of God. He was mainly concerned for the mission that will take place. And wow, is that a good, uh, good man, full of the Holy Spirit, that we can learn from. And they spent, it says, they taught large numbers for a whole year. Now, why would they spend so much time teaching? Well, it just shows the importance of God's word that shapes our lives. In, in Jerusalem, they would have had a background in Judaism, in the Old Testament. So you can imagine Paul and Barnabas needing to teach the whole counsel of God from creation and the fall and the story of redemption and the new heavens and new earth. So they, they, they took time to teach the whole Bible, the ground the church in the faith. And when you read Paul's letters, the 13 letters he wrote to these churches, he's always mentioned false teachers or avoiding this. So he's, they're also preparing a church to withstand a culture in, the, in false teaching. So we need to be people that are growing and maturing and encouraged and learning God's word. And, that, and this work made the church very unique in Antioch, okay? It made the church very stand out as in the culture. Um, you know, typically Christians to each other in the book of Acts, they're calling each other disciples, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, followers of the way. But what do Antiochians going to call them? What are they going to call them? This unique group. They decide to call them for the first time in history, Christians. They use the word Christians to name them from them. Now, what, now what, what is with this name, Christians? Um, it's, so on the one hand, you can imagine the culture around them. They, they, they couldn't quite put their finger on this group because they're, they're they weren't just like a variety of Jews. So you know, it's not like you can just say, oh, they're a sect of Judaism. No, not quite because they're Jew and Gentile. And then they just couldn't put their finger on them to say, oh, they're just another Roman religion. No, they're preaching Christ as Lord. They have a whole, they're not under our Roman gods. And they came up with the name Christians. That's what they called them. It's actually a really creative name. I, I was doing some research on the name. So remember, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. 
And then they added an ending to it, kind of a Latinized ending. So here you have Hebrew, Greek, Latin, all influencing this name Christian. Because <laughs> who are they? They're Jew and Gentiles talking about Jesus endlessly, <laughs> growing and maturing, getting along, unified around Christ, lives being changed. They called them Christians. That was a unique group. That was like a new humanity they're witnessing, a new, a new race of people. No, no way they're going to designate. They had to get a new name to define this. This is the power of what's happening with the gospel and their encouragement and the teaching. Here, Christ's people on earth, they stand out. They're unique. We're going to name them this. These people are, there's something going on here that we don't see in anywhere else. And that's what God's doing. That's the second point. A missional church grows through encouragement and in-depth teaching. <clears throat> Third, a missional church is sacrificially generous in good deeds. Look at verses 27 to 30. <clears throat> it's a section where they hear of a famine and they respond to it. Now, if you follow the stages of development to this point of the church in Antioch, let me just bullet point some follows. Now, I want you to see how we get to this, okay? So first, courageous proclamation of the Lordship of Christ. God's hand caused the growth. New converts were examined and encouraged from the heart. The encouraged believers led to more evangelism and growth. A ministry team was formed for more in-depth teaching and training. This young church hears of a severe famine, and they respond with generosity. How did they get so wise and generous and gracious and loving so fast? They were going to give of themselves. It's profound. And what's interesting, when you read the book of Acts, every new church was so sacrificially generous. The church in Jerusalem, you saw this. It was the, it's the vital part of their church, Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6. They were going to care for the poor and the widows and those around them. And now the church in Antioch is sacrificial in giving, caring for the poor. And this famine that was predicted became true. It was about A.D. 47. Egypt was hit really hard. They had a, Egypt was like the breadbasket for the Roman Empire. And so the prices of bread and grain and various produce skyrocketed, the inflation of it all. And that money was sent to help feed them during this time of crisis as they were extremely hit. And this church, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that the daughter church now becomes the great provider to the parent church. And, and they fell. Think about, it, think, about it, think about their mindset in Antioch. They said, oh, if my left arm's hurting, I'm hurting. They, they, they so identified with the church in Jerusalem, location difference, that they're going to help with it. And isn't that profound? Isn't that, doesn't that move your hearts to say, oh, this is the body of Christ. When one part of the body hurts in some part of the world, we can all feel it and sense it, and is God calling us to do it? That's, that's what their mindset was. A missional church cares about all kinds of suffering. And they can be generous because our citizenship is in heaven, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We have a secure home, so it's possible to be sacrificially generous in this life. This isn't what we're living for. We have a we're looking forward to the city to come. And this new church wasn't under obligation. Look at what it says. Each disciple gave according to his ability, as he or she desired. 
they sent relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea. And it was really profound. When we announced here in our church of sister churches in Ukraine that happened during the war around February 24th, uh, and the needs, the need for feeding refugees and people f- fleeing uh, their homes and whatnot, we were able to collect funds here and send it to partner churches. And so we praise God for how our church was able to respond, help them in this rebuilding. And by the way, if you want to hear an update, today at 2 o'clock on Zoom, we're going to talk to Pastor Andre Kudkov on Zoom. So you can, even, you can be mowing your grass, turn on your phone, and join us. Like, we made it as simple as possible. So 2 p.m. today, if you don't have the Zoom link, let me know or church office, and it's in the last email if you get the church's email. So, but that's a third missional, that's our third point of a characteristic of a missional church, is a missional church is sacrificially generous in good deeds. Fourth, a missional church reflects the diversities of our cities. Now, jump over to chapter 13, verse 1. This young church had diverse leadership, a routine of prayer, and became the first missionary sending church in Christian history. Remember, the evangelistic efforts in Samaria were not strategically planned by the church. Christians were fleeing persecution and sharing the gospel as they went. But the church in Antioch has this God-given insight to pray about it, and they want to be witnesses in unreached areas of the world. The city of Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was quite the multicultural, cosmopolitan city, you might guess it could be. I mean, historically, we know Jews lived in the city, Greeks, uh, Romans, Asians, and Africans were all in this city. And the church leadership reflected that. This, this, it's in their leadership team. They had a council of leaders who were prophets and teachers. And were given five names that they mentioned. Barnabas, who we know is from Cyprus. Simeon, called Niger. Almost certainly indicating he was a black African. He was living there. He's on this church council. Lucian, Lucian from Cyrene. Cyrene is North Africa, around Libya today. Almost certainly indicating some more there. Um, and Mannion, uh, what very interesting person this guy was, he grew up as a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which is Herod Antipas, which is mentioned in Luke 3. He imagine growing up with that guy. This is a, so what a very unique church council of um, I mean, no one's from a Christian home, right? No one grew up in a Christian home. So they all came from different religious backgrounds. They all came from different ethnicities. And they even had different social status between them all. And here they are, united, praying, worshiping the one true and living God, committed to doing good work in the world and shares gospel. That is only what the gospel can create, where these um, differences that were among them we don't even know what problems they might have had. <laughs> but no wonder God would stir this particular group for a strategic mission effort. I mean, they were already, think about it. Think about how pragmatic this is in, in one sense. 
If you don't reflect your own local community, mission field, how do you think you're going to impact missions in the rest of the world if, you don't, if you're not even effective in your own local church context? And so part of this, God's just blessing their efforts, their unity, and their centrality. They have, a, they have understood the centrality of the gospel. So that, that's really a, a fourth missional. A missional church reflects the diversity of our locations, our cities. Fifth, a missional church is prayerful and intentional to send gospel workers. Chapter 13, verses 2 to 3. In his book, Prayer Revolution, John Smed said, Praying, especially praying together, is our means of experiencing the presence and power of the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Corporate prayer, we see this in Acts a lot. In Acts 1, in fact, the disciples joined together constantly in prayer. They learned this from Christ. Jesus lived a life of prayer. Prayer is the instrument and means by which believers are sustained and emboldened until Jesus returns. All prayer is to the risen king, reigning from heaven. So all prayer is kingdom prayer as Jesus advances his work on earth. Fasting was aiding their prayer. The worship, they're rejoicing in their union with Christ. And in their prayer, God revealed his plans and purposes. It's both uh, instructive and very convicting <laughs> that the church in Antioch didn't make plans to reach the nations first, but they made prayer plans. You know, that, they say, hey, let's meet. Let's have interactive times of prayer and hearing from God. I mean, how foolish for us to make important plans and decisions with little or maybe no prayer. Um, John Smed says, as we pray and fast, we partner with Christ. And we learn to yield to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Archaeological digs have discovered over 30 churches in Antioch. So their global interests didn't neglect local church planning. But at the same time, local church planning wasn't their only goal. God still had purpose for them for the global advancement of the gospel through the Roman Empire. And the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit said it. It's in quotes. Now, we don't know how the Holy Spirit said this. Um, maybe through one of the prophets that was there or somehow in their prayer meeting. But the Spirit has work for them. You know, the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the unseen yet active personal presence of God in the world, the Spirit who unites believers in Christ. He has a work prepared for that church, and particularly for Barnabas and Paul, but he also has a work for each and every one of his children. The Spirit directs our plans. The Spirit empowers our witness. The Spirit diversifies our gifts for the work he's called each of us to, work he's prepared in advance for us to do. God puts multiple gifts in his church, which means not everyone's assigned the same thing. There's a variety of needs in the world, and God is going to raise up a variety of people to meet those needs. Missions is meant to engage all of us, whether you're a 
student, a stay-home parent, a Starbucks employee. Uh, maybe you're uh, this summer a swimming instructor. Or maybe you're a counselor. Uh, maybe you're a volunteer at a ministry. You are gifted to be a witness for Christ. That's part of being on mission. But some of us will be called by the Spirit for gospel ministry among unreached people groups. Joe prayed this prayer a couple weeks ago. God declared that he wants heaven to consist of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language. The Spirit of God is pursuing that end. Even with all the technological advances in the world, there are still distinct ethnic groups with no known believers and no churches among them. And this should create great urgency in our praying, especially when we consider both the need for salvation in Christ and God's call in our life as we understand it. So Jesus taught us to pray for more labors. Luke 10.2 says this. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I've attempted to pray Luke 10.2 by this method. I put a notification on my phone that goes off every day, well, most days, at 10.02. And it's just to remind me to pray that prayer with whatever I'm doing, to add that, include that in my praying. It's a meager attempt, but I'm attempting this. And God is answering this prayer even beyond this room. We're thankful. We have a lot of indigenous partners that we have known as a church family, both in North Africa and Indonesia, Muslim background believers who are followers of Christ, who, who are clear evangelists for the gospel. We've partnered with them, and they're seeing great works. We're seeing churches planted through partners as well. And that's part of our mission strategy, too. So it's exciting, guys. It's very exciting. But this, this fifth point, a missional church is prayerful and intentional to send out gospel workers. So this morning, from the early church, we've tried to find five characteristics of a missional church, church that relies on everyone to be bold and extensive in your evangelism, a church, a missional church that grows through encouraging and good teaching, a missional church that is sacrificial and generous, missional church with diverse people in ministry, and this last one, emphasizing prayer, fasting, and sending of people. The Swiss theologian Emil Brunner highlighted something very important. He famously said this, a church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. So like how burning is essential to being a fire, it's not an optional extra, it, it, or it's not an activity that it decides to do whether it wants to or not. In the same way, the church exists by mission, with mission being our identity. We see this in the book of Acts. It's not an activity we do or a task we decide to take on. Because when a church loses its mission, it ceases to be, according to Acts, church. A church exists by mission as fire exists by burning. Let's pray. 